Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Psychic's Thoughts. I hope you're all doing well today. Um, it's been a, about a week since I've recorded my last episode. Um, and in this past week, I've just been thinking about things, as I often do. <laughs> all kinds of things, really. Uh, a lot that aren't pertinent to this channel, of course. Um, so before I get started, please, when you guys get a chance, go check out my latest album, Dragon. It is streaming everywhere. Um, P-S-Y-K-I-C-K, all one word, capital P, capital K. I appreciate that, as well as my film, uh, my latest film, A Way Out, uh, on my YouTube channel, Psychic Productions, uh, spelt the same way as uh, on this channel and elsewhere. Uh, please check those out and support when and where you can. I appreciate the love and support as always, and of course, follow me on Instagram at Psychic34, no caps, all together. So... I was thinking, and I was kind of bouncing between a handful of topics I wanted to cover on the video game world. And it gets to a point where I, I love talking about these topics, and I, I'm perfectly happy uh, on my own time to repeat myself. And I will. Uh, I'm, I'm only one person, right? I'm going from the top of my head here with um, maybe just a bullet point to keep me structured. I'm saying, I'm telling you like five or six words that are just making a bullet point and then everything else is freestyle. Sometimes I have a few more notes, especially if it's on a topic that I need a little more uh, data on just so I don't get my uh, facts screwed up. Uh, and of course, as I've said before, and I'll say it again, this is my own opinion. This is from my um, head. Now I do try to present as fairly as possible, the details, the evidence, the facts of the matter, and then I'll go into my opinion or what I think should be, and I try to clearly state or define those differences so people aren't getting anything misconstrued. Um, so that's how, and I will continue to do that, and, and this still is uh, coming from the top of my head. But it gets to a point where over time, when I when I talk about these topics, and, and they do overlap a lot of the times, and they feed into each other. And I, I would like to think over the course, if you went from podcast one all the way up, first off, you'll learn more about me. You'll learn a lot about the video game industry, and especially me pinging, excuse me, pinging on games or franchises or genres that particularly interest me that I can talk at nauseum about, right? So yeah, it may be a little repetitive because it is just coming from me, right? Um, but I try to diversify it when it when it comes to when it comes to the video game information. I really do, and I try to. I have other podcast episodes about how I make music, or about mental health, or about films, some other stuff. But I'd say about 80 to 90% of it is about video games and my personal thoughts on this, that, or this part of the industry because it is a great love of mine. It is a hobby of mine. I do some research on it, and I'd love to just kind of consolidate that information and, and regurgitate in, in my own through my own lens to you all. And um, I appreciate all the support of everybody who comes by and listens, whether it's for one minute uh, 30 minutes or the whole segment of the podcast. Usually I think I average an hour, 45 minute long podcast. So I know it's not particularly the most flashy, the highest quality or the most engaging, but I try to keep it that way. Um, with the resource and time constraints I, uh, I have. So 
once again, I appreciate all the support. Um, so with that in mind, I was thinking about it, and, and I've and I have touched on this. I have discussed this before. Um, you know, in in other avenues and in other ways, but I want to discuss more in depth what makes a multiplayer game feasible, viable, important, relevant, whatever uh, you want to say, but what makes it tick and work. And I don't mean from a mechanical, oh, you have to code that. No, 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 no. I, I don't know. I'm not a game developer. I'll be the first to say I'm not a game developer. Um, I've, I've researched game development. I've, you know, I, I've read in on it. But I, I will never speak on it as if I am a game developer. Of course, if you ever want to know the, that perspective, please find a way to reach out to uh, game developers, whether it's someone you know or something online about that. I try to, to give a more well-rounded picture to learn of the industry from their perspective as I would hope many people try to understand when there's a certain industry you love to consume um, try to try to get it from the flip perspective of the people who love it as well and create it because it's a difference and that's different from the people who publish it right uh, a filmmaker a film director right and I am a filmmaker I'm a professional filmmaker as well as a rapper uh, and you know so I'm a, I'm a songwriter too and the my perspective on it because I love watching films I love listening to music in general and, and specifically rap music so I, I do have the consumer mentality I do have my favorite things and they of course influence my own work and my love and dedication to my crafts um, is something to be mentioned or noted when you check out a film of mine or listen to an album of mine and I would hope people would take that in to consideration the hard work and the love and, and that I I don't put anything out there that I don't think you know that that I don't think is is worthy you know I, I wouldn't put it out there if I didn't think it was at least valid or at least worth giving a shot um now of course I try to outdo myself with every official project release but um, I won't put anything out I'm not proud of personally and that I don't think, you know, and that I think shouldn't be out there. I wouldn't do that. I only put out the stuff I, I care about and that I'm proud of. That's just on me. That's just me. But I, I will say that I think a lot of artists, a lot of people have that mentality. And regardless of what pedigree they're in or what success they may have found. And so I think that's something to distinguish because oftentimes... Uh, you'll see a, a video game, right? Or you'll see a movie or you'll see a, an album. And you might think, okay, it seemed promising at first. Okay, I like this one. I like this track. I like this scene. I like this uh, level, right? But what happened? Uh, why isn't the rest of this product like that? I think we all find that uh, in certain things when we're disappointed or when we feel like something could have been more, especially from an artist or from a studio or from a, a group of peoples who we, uh, admire. And I'd like to extend that, uh, onto the thought that sometimes they think they're hitting the mark and they're not. Honest mistake. Communication is key. Sometimes we don't always know our audience. Sometimes we just do what we want to do regardless of if everyone else will love it. I think that's important to acknowledge. Also, 
the publisher or the larger entity that is in control, either creatively or financially, has a huge impact. Even if they're not in control creatively, if they control your finances and your resources to produce the content you want to create, it's going to be changed. Whether it's directly or indirectly, it will may not be what it would have been if you didn't have that influence in the creative process. And so that's something I want to point out, right? People hounded, including myself at first, got really on Bungie's case for the first Destiny and even the release of the base game of Destiny 2 when that came out because it was static. Wasn't that interesting? It wasn't, it was fun. It played well. It played like a dream. Mechanically, it all worked. So kudos to that. But it just didn't feel like there was much substance to it. Nothing to do in a world that was set up and advertised where you could do everything you want, really. I mean, not, you know, not really, not like GTA, but, but in all honesty, in the way it was marketed, it seemed like it would have had a lot of versatility and a lot of depth to the gameplay loop and to what you could have done and explored. And it didn't, at least not at launch. I can't speak on it now. I haven't played it in a while, but I've heard that the expansions have really fleshed it out to be what it was intended to be. And that's, that's great. That's really, that's a really terrific thing to see. But when we're looking at when they first released as the base game without the expansions or with minimal expansions, it wasn't. Why? I'm not quite sure. I can't speak on it fully. Who knows? It could be a million things towards the sun that would cause that to, to change. But I, I can say almost with, with uh, great confidence that Activision has a part to play in that massively. The publisher, right, the person who is financially backing it made some of these mechanics that people didn't favor as well as probably reduced the amount of time and, uh, and process that Bungie might have needed to create what they what what they could have now sometimes people may argue pressure right when you're in when you're under pressure it creates a diamond right it it it, it makes you push yourself in the constraints are given look at the movie jaws look at the entire rap career of Eminem look at um look at halo right look at all of some of these great things that have come to, I'm just naming a few off the top that, that personally impact me. But um, if you look at all those things, they were all met with tremendous pressure and not just like a safe amount of, oh, this is a little worrisome. No, no, no. The kind of pressure that if it didn't succeed, it would have completely destroyed everything and we wouldn't have a Spielberg or a Jaws movie if he didn't overcome that pressure. We wouldn't have Eminem in his discography if he didn't overcome that pressure in his early career. We wouldn't have Halo and the franchise and possibly the success of Xbox if Bungie wasn't put under the constraints and pressure that they had when developing the first Halo. So yeah, pressure can be the father of innovation at times. I, I do agree with that, but I think there is a level of artificial and natural pressure and I think when you're creating anything especially something that is of a personal endeavor or creative or art there's always pressure I don't care who you think you are you are gonna be under pressure speaking from experience every time someone asks me what is it like to release an album doesn't it get easier the anxiety the woes the fears of doing so the emotional mental task of doing it no 
becomes more familiar. So yeah, for in some regards, it, it gets easier. I wouldn't say it's nearly as stressful as difficult when I did my debut. But each album I drop, each project, is met with a different hurdle, different challenge I need to overcome through the creation process, but also through the final steps of releasing it. And every time, every time I do it, I still am met with the same anxiety, the same pressure at the end, during, of course, but also when I am about to release it, when it's already distributed and I'm waiting for that damned release date. <laughs> um, because it's a, it's a part of me. Right? It's, a, it's something that I have created out of, out of the love of my um, heart, out of my passion to create something. And it is, it is me. It is solely written by me, unless, of course, I have a feature verse and that, that, that specific artist writes their verse, right? But everything else, everything that I am rapping, I have written, I have edited, I have recorded, I have practiced. Um, I'm now producing beats. So uh, Dragon, for example, my latest album, seven of the ten tracks are produced by me as well. And I mixed and mastered it all. So, yeah, and I made the cover work and the promos, like, I put a lot of hours and time and energy into it, and and may, may, might I add, that paid off tremendously, and I didn't think it did when it initially dropped, because I'd like to say I'm not affected by the streams, I'm not, but it does impact my my thought of success, and I know it shouldn't, because streams are a very temporary thing, but that is the best metric to benchmark my success in relation to my previous drops. If in the first three days it gets more initial streams, great. Within the first month, if it gets more initial streams, and within its, within a year, if it has more streams in the last project, then I know I did something right on the marketing aspect. And on Spotify and on certain programs, I can see um, how many daily or average listens I get a day and monthly and all that. And if there's a more concentrated retention, if I get... You know, I think Psychic Logical surprisingly had two average daily listens. And then Brain Tapes Volumes 1 and 2, between 2 and 3 average daily listens. Chameleon dropped for a while. It stayed at an average of 4. So that was a pretty big jump. And when Chameleon dropped, that hit like 2,500 streams on Spotify. Uh, about 1,000 or so, maybe 600 to 700 on Apple Music and a few other elsewhere. So it was pretty good. It was pushing over 3,000. And it's and it had a higher average listener, and it stayed around longer. After two months, people were still consistently listening to it more than my previous project. So it was a, a huge success in my book. So making a soft sequel, not only creatively making something better than that in terms of writing, in terms of the actual rapping performance, in terms of the production style, mixing and mastering, trying to make everything better an improvement from the last which I did otherwise I wouldn't have released it so that's one aspect that's the hardest part actually and then hoping that when I put it out there it's well received hoping that my marketing and everything at least gets the people who listen to the first one and if not gets a few more people and at first people at first I, I was met with a great critical reception, which was so, so pleasing to hear that people enjoyed it and liked it and, and truly understood it as an improvement and understood why it took me so long. Not very long, less than a year still, but, but longer than usual. About two months longer than usual to get it the way I wanted to. 
So, that was great to hear. But the streams numbers didn't uh, didn't punch up as high as I was thinking, honestly. And then I was okay with that. I, I got over it, and the, the initial weekend was good. I'm not saying it was bad at all. In fact, it was as good as Chameleon on the initial two days. But then the third day to the seventh day, that's usually like when that happened for Chameleon. I think I crossed a thousand streams on Spotify alone and a couple hundred on Apple Music. And for Dragon, it was at about 150 streams on Spotify, inching towards 200. And it was good on Apple Music. It was about 600 on Apple Music. So all in all, it wouldn't even cross 1,000, whereas I think by the 7th to 14th day, within that time frame for Chameleon, I was crossing 3,000. So about uh, 66% less streams across the board. So I was a little bit like, okay, well, now I know. And then... By the third week, third, fourth, and fifth week, it shot up. I didn't pay for any promos. I didn't know what happened. I didn't know what I did. I, I don't know if it's random. I don't know if I'll ever be able to repeat this. It shot up a couple thousand a day for almost a week, and now it's at 33,000. So, yeah, I'm still gawking at that. It's an incredible uh, experience. It really validated a lot. Uh, and, and made me feel really proud and, and gave me a boost of confidence I, I very much needed. So thank you to everybody who's checked that out. Um, that isn't my main topic. I want to talk about multiplayer games and how I think they should thrive and succeed in this modern era. But I just wanted to go uh, a little bit in that tangent and give you guys a little br- uh, breakdown backstory on that for those who may be interested. So please go check out Dragon and, and of course, all my other albums and work. And uh, as always, I appreciate love and support. Let's get into it on what I believe um, are key aspects that a multiplayer game needs to survive in the modern world. Let's get into it. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm a little congested with allergies, so please bear with me. Um, I want to thank everybody who's taken the time to come listen. I apologize for going on a little side tangent there about uh, Dragon and, and all the music career stuff but I think it's still kind of prevalent to the passion and the understanding of artistry and and the perspectives that come with that so yeah um so there are a handful of things in my mind that make um a marketing you know uh I'm sorry not a marketing a, a multiplayer first person shooter or just a multiplayer game in general more more generally um usually i base multiplayer games off fps's just so you all know that's only because that's what i prefer to play that's what i know about that doesn't mean that's the only game i play of course i play all kinds of games as you have as you could tell uh, (laughs) from all the games i've reviewed talked about mentioned and, and whatever else so um The one of the crucial things in my mind about multiplayer games and their success, their longevity, their vitality in the modern gaming industry. And when I say modern gaming industry, I mean, let's just say for sake of argument, 
between the times of about eh, 2013, 2015, starting around that time frame to now and for the next three or four years. Because the industry does change rapidly in micro doses. However, on the grand scale, the grand scheme of things, it takes a little longer for things to significantly change where the way we market things and the way we think of video games change with it, right? Most notably when you think about 2007 Call of Duty for Modern Warfare, right? When you look at the marketing and promo behind that and the way they presented the game is completely different to Modern Warfare 2019's, right? Once again, please bear with me with my allergies. I am stuffed up, but I still want to get through this. Um, so, yeah. I think some people think I, I sound funny. They, they think this is how I sound when I rap sometimes. I'm like, no. No, I have I have allergies right now. At fall season. Um, which is crazy, too, because I only get allergies like two times of the year. And, of course, today, when I want to finish this podcast, is the day where that happens. Anyway. So, Modern Warfare... Uh, Call of Duty 4 Modern Warfare and then um, Modern Warfare 2019 see Modern Warfare 2019 was trying to build back their brand image Call of Duty 4 Modern Warfare was just getting it started just kicking it into a new gear that people never knew before Call of Duty 4 feels younger not because it is, not just because it is. I mean, obviously that's part of it, but it feels younger because that's who they were aiming for. Whereas when you look at Modern Warfare 2019, it's really interesting. They were aiming for, yeah, sure, younger people too, no doubt about it. But if anyone tries to convince me that Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2019 edition, that version, was aiming for the same age demographic as Call of Duty 4 Modern Warfare in 2007. And you got me fucked up, because that is not the case. By the time 2019 rolled around and that game came out, it was also aiming for the demographic of the people who played Modern Warfare in 27, uh, I'm sorry, in 2007 for the first time. That's who they were aiming for. Nostalgia. As well as introducing a new generation to the Modern Warfare reboot. And we have Modern Warfare 2 coming out now. Will it see the same success as uh, 2009's? I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. I hope. I hope it does well. Anyway. So, with that communication. That's a pillar to multiplayer success in the modern era. And by communication, I mean multiple things when I say that. So let's get into communication within the multiplayer uh, games and, and why that's such an important aspect to the success of a multiplayer game. So, of course, when I talk communication, in games that take communication in-game as an important step, like in a Rainbow Six Siege type or a Ready or Not type, right, a tactical game, or something where it just takes a little more communication strategy and, and thought to it. Sure, of course, in-game comms are great, right? Having the option and availability to talk into the um, in-game chat, to talk to people, to communicate, to make new friendships, great. Um, of course, those can come with caveats and downsides, right? With uh, harassment, cyberbullying, and toxic behavior. But luckily, 
And usually most of these things come with the beautiful feature of muting yourself and others, right? So text chat, emotes, contextual pinging in game. And by that, I mean when you're in a map and you need some and you don't feel like turning on your mic, you don't feel like typing the chat, perfectly fine. We all have those days. Um, some people just prefer to play without communicating at all. That's fine. But some sort of quick communication keys could be helpful. So if you're playing a game like Apex Legends, right, or Warzone, or Rainbow, you know, I know these are all FPS games. Those are what I'm most versed in. Uh, I know that's not the only multiplayer games out there. Um, but for this instance, contextual pinging, where you ping where the enemy is, you say, hey, over there, hunt showdown, right? Oh, hey, check that out. There's someone over, th-, you know, that's helpful. That's communication. So that's, that's a facet of it, but that's not what I'm really talking about for this segment. What I'm talking about, more importantly, is the communication line between the devs and publishers, not internally, either one of them or both of them, communicating to the public. That's vital. And the way they do it is more important than almost any other aspect in gaming, in my opinion, when it comes to the success and vitality of a multiplayer video game. Now, all these parts, all these core pillars that I'm breaking down throughout this episode, I have discussed before with other context. I have maybe gone in depth on it, maybe not. I'm not quite sure. This is a rough um, you know, outline, just a few lines written down, and then I'm doing the rest from the top of my head. But I will say that um, for for a lot of these things, even if I've discussed them before, it's going to be different in certain ways on how it's integrated in the multiplayer aspect. Um, but bear with me, because some of my examples and some of my thoughts I have stated before, so if you're uh, a long-time listener, if you're a consistent listener, first off, I, I really do appreciate it. Um, it's just an incredible thought to have that just a handful of people monthly will come and listen to my my nerdy ass talking about video games or whatever else is on my mind. Um, so thank you. Thank you for that. So anyway... Um, and so none of these core things that I talked about throughout this episode, none of them take priority over the other. They're all kind of interconnected. The order that I'm going in is just one that makes sense in my brain, but it actually has no prioritization in the list. So I'm, gonna st- I'm starting with communication. That doesn't mean that's necessarily the most important thing about a multiplayer game. Uh, and for its success. I'm not just talking about what makes a good multiplayer game. Quite frankly, I don't know all that. I mean, I don't think anybody really knows the formula. That's why it's such an interesting proposition to try to make a good multiplayer game. I don't think it's that. I do think um, it more so has to do with the time, the place, and, of course, what you develop, obviously. Um, but there's other aspects to it that we can pinpoint and look at and, and measure. And that's what I'm getting at as well. So it's kind of all-inclusive. But this is really not just a, oh, what my favorite multiplayer games are, what are good multiplayer games, that will be discussed. But this is more so what I believe makes a good multiplayer game, what makes it future-proof. Remember, we were talking about future-proofing a couple episodes ago. And what makes it viable, what makes it last in this 
ever-evolving, ever-changing landscape of modern game design. So I just want to get that a little, little uh, heads up out of the way. So, going forward, communication. So first off, when it comes down to communication, and and you might hear stories about this, and I think this is kind of important to keep just as a footnote. Publishers and developers. There is an important dynamic to that. One that I think many people may not realize. And that's okay. Um, so the dynamic can be good. It could be just neutral, which it usually is. Or it could be very hostile. Okay, In the case of something being very hostile, we're looking at something like Activision and Bungie. Activision wanted to do this and that. Saw fit for this or, or that. right? And Bungie saw this for that in their own regard for the treatment and the future of Destiny. Okay. Which is a good game, but it was marred with a lot of issues. Now, I'm not saying who caused what, when, where, and how. Quite frankly, I don't know that. You know, this is just me giving my thoughts and opinions and observations from deeper research and study, but I'm not a professional. I'm not a game developer. I'll be the first to always tell you that, right? I'm not a game publisher. I'm not in the industry. I do as much research as I can with the time and and the resources I'm given. And then I'm just giving you my thoughts and opinions by all means, as always. If you want to learn more, if you don't quite agree with me, if you if you think I'm wrong on something, please take the time and go check and do your own research. Make sure you cross-reference it, have multiple sources and, and sites of information. I usually do, right? When I talk about something, it's something that's been reiterated through other people in the industry who I follow, through some of the books I've read or through some of the just general things I've learned from playing, from watching developer interviews and breakdowns. I mean, usually it's pretty safe to say when you're watching the source of it, when you're watching developers speak on their experience, it's a pretty safe bet. That doesn't mean that everything they say is true. doesn't mean that they haven't exaggerated something, but the gist of what they're talking about, the mechanics of how it works is quite true. I may not have worked on a Marvel set film, but I can sure as hell tell you roughly what it what it was like, because I have met people who, in fact, I've met and talked to the first AD of uh, Avengers and Shang Chi and a bunch of other uh, huge Marvel films. The the uh, first assistant director, I've, I've I've talked to him for a while and learned a lot from him. So, you know, but. But that, that's just something to consider. I haven't been on one, so I can't fully speak on it. But I've learned and, and, and deciphered and disseminated information. Deciphered? Yeah. And disseminated information from those who have been there. So, like I said, not everything may be accurate. And in the case of these interpersonal relationships, it gets a little more muddy. But when we're talking about publishing to developing, right? Publishers, the way I think of it, they're the financiers. They're the people backing it. Of course, they have distribution. Of course, they have the network control, right? Just like with the latest Star Wars movie, the movie, Rise of Skywalker, right? Not a great movie. I don't think we should treat it like it's the worst film ever made, but for a Star Wars movie, it's pretty damn bad. 
I don't really blame J.J. Abrams for that. He does have some fault in it. He did direct it, and it turned out to be a mess. Of course, he has to take responsibility for that. I really don't fault him, though, because he did a good job with Force Awakens. No, it's not the best Star Wars ever, but it's a pretty damn good attempt. It's the best of the new trilogy, in my opinion. Though, I went back and I rewatched Last Jedi, and I'm going to say something pretty controversial. I don't think it was that bad. I was so mad at it at first. I hated it at first. And I went back and I watched it and I realized the philosophy. I think if they cut the casino shit, reduce the Ruth and Finn's... uh, I'm sorry, Rose and Finn, right? That was her name. See, she's so forgettable, I don't even know her name. Um, Reduce that that time. I don't mind if they have a... I think their chemistry was fine. And I think they were plenty interesting enough. I just think there's too much time spent on them when there didn't need to be. We were here for Ren and Rey. That shit was the most interesting, the most dynamic, the most explosive. Right? So I think cutting out the casino for the majority of it, maybe just showing a a quick clip. Just having five to eight minutes instead of 35 minutes worth of the casino. And that whole side storyline would have really helped with the pacing. Really would have helped with the focus. Right? And then a couple of choices like not killing Snoke immediately. But I do now understand the philosophy of what Last Jedi was trying to do. And don't worry, this relates back to the communication and publisher and developer. I'll get there. You know me, I like my tangents. Um, But the philosophy was we're trying to be Empire Strikes Back, but the newer updated version. We're trying to shake the ground from underneath and change up the mold. See, what Empire Strikes, uh, Empire Strike Back did was it created the interpersonal drama. It raised the stakes. Not only did it expand the lore in the universe tenfold, right? Introduced new planets, new systems, new currencies, new races, new right enemy types, all that kinds of things. Something a proper sequel should do. It also where The first one, right, the original Star Wars for my old heads or Star Wars New Hope for my younger generation. Um, That movie kicked it all off, started it, was a nice adventure. Heroic story, swashbuckling, good time, right? Had drama, had a lot of things to build on, but didn't worry itself with that. Kept on the straight and narrow, as it should. It was the first movie, it needed to kick things off, and it did a phenomenal job doing so, right? So the sequel needs to up the ante, not in not just in scale and, and what's presented and what's seen on screen, which it did, but also in the conflict and the drama from an internal and external. The external threat got much larger somehow. <laughs> How do you top the Death Star? Well, a whole fucking army. It really made it apparent that the Empire isn't just trying to make one planet killer because they're kind of like weird and have a weird idea about planets. No, no, no. It, it makes, it reinforces why the Death Star is so menacing, honestly. Because the Death Star was a, was a early prototype of them dominating the universe. But what Empire Strikes Back did is it showed the person, not the machine. So while the Death Star was this incredibly, incredibly designed machine that, that is haunting, right? In terms of its usage, it destroys planets and it's man-made. That's horrifying right but and it was also a space station but the thing is what empire strikes back did because there's no death star now there's no super weapon 
is it had soldiers. It had stormtroopers, snowtroopers, all kinds of troopers. It had Vader. It had all kinds of enemies, bounty hunters, storming the sanctuaries, the places, the killing people. So we got to see the more visceral side of the war. And it made a more haunting presence on the of how the Empire is slowly infecting the galaxy and making a chokehold. At the same time, we learn of the interpersonal drama of the royalty of the Skywalker blood and the power behind it from the Luke perspective to the Leia perspective to even Han right even though he's not a Skywalker to of course Vader it upped the ante in every kind of way and it's considered one of the best Star Wars movies and almost a perfect example of a of a space action drama epic a space opera and it very much is so what Last Jedi was trying to do was that in the modern context. Flip things on its ear, expand the universe, bring in a new philosophy that not everything's so black and white, which Empire Strikes Back did beautifully. And so when I look at that movie like that, I don't hold it to as much fault. I just think, I think the idea and the intentions were right, but there are some critical points where it failed in delivering on that idea, in my opinion. But I I encourage you all to go back and watch it because it's actually a pretty solid movie. It's well done. And it really is trying to push the, the, the bar. And I can't knock it for trying. I respect that. When Force Awakens played it safe, Last Jedi went balls to the wall. So what's this have to do with publisher, developer, and communication in video games? Well, that was a little side tangent on my Star Wars nerdum, so bear with me. But it was also quite directly... We, we blame Ryan Johnson or J.J. Abrams. I hope no one blames Lawrence Kasdan for writing the new Star Wars, but people might. Um, we blame them, and they do deserve some fault to it. They did write, they did direct, they did produce all those, right? I'm not saying they're excused from fault. That's, what people, that's who people blamed at first. Now I think people are a little wiser to blame Disney for their mismanagement of the trilogy from the jump from when they put pin to pad and said let's make a new trilogy and from the management and the processing throughout the entire new trilogy it's on Disney as much as it is on the individual in fact more so because they have to they're the overseers of a trilogy and you need that when you're making a trilogy over the course of six seven years you need a a company with the big bucks who who has somebody overseeing it say, okay, wait, hold on, hold on now, you know, because the directors and the writers and the creative staff should be allowed to express their individuality, their creative and artistic freedom, and have their own merit to it. However, they still need to keep something intact so it's an actual trilogy, right? If there's a bunch of anthology things like a, the Star Wars Rogue One, which is why I think that did so well, and it wasn't a, it was an incredible film. I mean, it was just downright... Um, amazing because it was isolated not that it didn't connect to things of course it did but it connected to things kind of just just enough didn't really need to set anything up for a second sequel there's not going to be I I don't see the future of a Rogue 2 <laughs> which wouldn't make any sense calling it that but you know what I mean it knew where it needed to be and it put itself right there Disney knew what they wanted to do with it as well. That's 
the point I'm trying to make. Um, so the same thing with Activision to Bungie. Bungie knew what they wanted to do. They were um, handicapped in certain areas to be able to deliver on what they thought and what they saw fit for their Destiny franchise. So that can happen. That can happen a lot between publishers and developers where the individual is still at fault. Bungie is still at fault for, f- for fumbling the ball on elements of Destiny. Ryan Johnson and J.J. Abrams are still at fault for fumbling the ball on elements of Star Wars. But do not forget that the financier or the company who has oversee control and the, then the money that makes it possible, who has ultimate influence and sometimes final say or executive power over such, also have a huge part. In fact, the bigger part of it that needs to be analyzed. That's my point. So the publisher-developer dynamic is important. And sometimes you see it where they're perfectly married because they're the same thing. Sometimes the publisher and the developer, the developer is just offshoot of the publisher's parent company. Right? That's not the case with, with uh, PlayStation and Sony and all that and or Microsoft or Xbox. They have their own first-party studios now, but that's because they've acquired them or built them from the ground up. They do have an original Xbox team and stuff, but, like, even Bungie. Bungie made Halo. Halo is the flagship game, right? You know what I mean? Santa Monica Studios and Naughty Dog, they were built from PlayStation. They're clearly PlayStation, but they're not called PlayStation devs, you know? Whereas Ubisoft, or Ubisoft, however you want to pronounce it, the publishing company is Ubisoft, or Ubisoft. I call it Ubisoft, so I'm going to keep calling it that. Ubisoft is the parent publishing company. Then what's really interesting, I, I've never seen this for any other uh, dev. Ubisoft, by the way, is the largest video game company in terms of employees and in terms of global outreach or globalization, I should say. They've got more development studios and more employees to them. Even though they're not the highest profiting, that's why they churn out so many fucking games and I'll tell you this I'm not the biggest fan of them as a whole but I will say they have developed some of my all time favorite games specifically within the Tom Clancy sphere I think you know I love Tom Clancy and his books and his IP I always have um, and the movies and all that I would say up until 2018 Ubisoft did a phenomenal job with the Tom Clancy of new content. I think they're doing just fine with Rainbow Six Siege, right? That's one of my all-time favorite games. Splinter Cell Blacklist was one of my all-time favorite games. I know it's not the best Splinter Cell, but it just was... When it came out, it was... I needed it in life, right? It was one of those things that just helped me through a hard time, and it was an incredible game. And and anyone who hasn't played that, I I encourage you to go back and check it out. Because there's nothing really quite like it, and it's phenomenal at its features... And add its just versatility and gameplay as well as how fun it is. Ghost Recon Wildlands was a great, great game. You know? So. Um, those kinds of things. But I think of late, they haven't been doing as strong. But we'll see. We'll see. Maybe they just hit a, 
a little bit of a spiral here. Who knows? Um, no pun intended on their logo. <laughs> anyway, um, they named their development studios after the general city or country that they're in. Ubisoft Belgium, Ubisoft Montreal, Ubisoft, you know what I mean? I just find that Ubisoft Brazil, or not Brazil, I'm sorry, Rio de Janeiro, I think they have. I think they have one in Rio. Um, I could be wrong. But my point is that they have they have a Ubisoft uh, dev studio in almost every, <laughs> it feels like in every city and country on earth. It's not true, but sure as hell feels like it. Um, and it's impressive. Um, so that's kind of interesting because they, they actually don't really, I don't, I don't know. I don't work there. I haven't met anyone who works there, but it seems like they're pretty, um, lockstep and barrel with each other because their publisher is just, I mean, their devs are just, it's kind of the same thing. It's not like a thing with EA and DICE where even though DICE has been working with EA for forever, um, or a better example, Respawn. Respawn's been with EA since 2017, 2016. And they've done great work. In fact, I don't think Respawn has actually missed anything. Like, even with Apex Legends, even though it's not my kind of game, it's it's a well-made game. It's a phenomenally well-made game. Um, Respawn has made Titanfall, which is one of my all-time favorite FPS franchises, that simply does not get enough love or respect that it deserves. So Titanfall 1 and 2 are just downright incredible. Um, Apex Legends as well as Jedi Fallen Order they did a great job with that so those are their main flagship games I think I don't think they're they have any others that they solely own in terms of respawn they help with others and they're working on a crap ton now because they're like the premier studio for EA over dice now that's incredible Incredible change of pace. So yeah, it's just those kinds of things. And anyway, that was a long, long way. I actually deleted um, previous segments and just kept the intro because I thought the intro was pretty solid of this episode and re-recorded it because it went on too long before I could really even get to the meet. I'm still doing way better on time. I don't mind it being long. I just don't want it to be drawn out, you know, feel longer than it actually needs to. So, um, that's a really important aspect. Internally, the way they communicate, publisher, developer, that changes everything. And then going forward, how they present and market to the masses. So, let's get into the marketing and gameplay. Marketing still under the communication pillar, but I want to give it a quick uh, little break for you all. So, yeah. Marketing, gameplay, and then we'll continue on with some of the core things that make that I believe will make a multiplayer game last and and keep its vitality in the modern market. Stick around. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you all for listening and tuning in and supporting in any way you can. It does help me immensely, and it really uh, just means the world to me. So, uh, talked a little bit about. Oh, my music and the artistry and the love of it talked about the importance of communication and how that from the start can affect everything between the publisher and developer. I went on a little Star Wars side tangent just to illustrate my point 
and now here we are. So, and what makes a multiplayer game, a modern multiplayer game last, what keeps their vitality, what keeps them relevant, is a lot of things. When it comes to marketing, honesty, transparency, and clarity, right? Those things are essential. And it starts with the very beginning when you announce your game. When we see a game announcement, you you have to present everything truthfully. You can have a CGI trailer. You can have out-of-engine things. But when you're showing gameplay or in-engine, you have to show that sooner rather than later. People don't mind if it's not perfect. We don't. We understand it's a work in progress, and the way video games are designed are unlike anything else. It's a very complex network of systems in place, and making one slight change could break the entire game and take months to rework. So we understand that. Most people do. Um, Honestly, if they don't, oh well. Don't worry about that. Not everyone's going to understand it. The problem is... That that transparency and clarity in the information presented about the game is murky most of the time. Especially in AAA, bigger budget games, right? When they come out and they announce a new game, and this is one issue with release dates. I don't mind that it takes... I mean, I understand most games take three to four years to develop. I don't think anyone has a problem getting that through their mind. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to market it. And start promoting it three to six years before it's even released. You know, some big franchises and, and certain events is fine. When you're an individual studio, really small, and you need a Kickstarter campaign to help fund the game, that's different. I'm not talking about that. Don't worry about that. That's that's understandable. They need the money. They have to start promoting early. They're smaller. They're not going to get the the crowd uh, involved as easily. I'm talking about the bigger studios or the bigger events where games are shown at Gamescom, right? At E3, at these conventions, at the Game Awards, these big trailers, the ones that the news outlets will break down. Even if it's by a smaller studio, if it's shown there, you know, you can have teasers, you could say coming out here. But I think usually, in my mind, when it's most successful, Um, In terms of marketing and controlling and managing hype, which is a very powerful tool, but could also be very destructive. It's very volatile. It's like plutonium. It's just one of those things where it can really get everybody excited, get them believing in something, get them thinking and moving and motivated in ways they never have before about a game. And if it doesn't meet their internal expectations that they allow themselves to build upon, they're going to be disappointed. And it's an emotional thing. You could say you're managing your expectations and your hype and you can try your damnedest and maybe you can do a little bit of management. But that's your logic talking with your emotion. If I'm excited about a game, it's emotional. I'm sorry, it is. I'm excited about Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. I'm excited about Diablo 4. I am excited about Elden Ring DLC. I am excited for some of these new games that I don't even remember the name of that were announced recently. I'm excited for High on Life. I am excited for all these kinds of things. I am. 
emotionally, I'm looking forward to it. It, it gives me a reason to look forward to pushing on through the day, through the week, through the month. However, logically, I know that oftentimes that excitement, that hype that I put on myself can be met with great disappointment. And it's not thing that it's nothing where I'm like, man, this game fucking sucks. It's just like, oh, I had more fun getting excited about the game than I did playing it. And oftentimes a game that really grabs me by the balls and keeps me with them for forever or really creates my love for it is a game where I had very minimal hype to. A little bit, a little bit, enough to get me to buy it or to get me interested. Rainbow Six Siege I was hyped about. I was. I didn't follow every single thing about it. I saw the E3 trailer. I saw the updated trailer and like six months later, I heard about the gameplay. I saw one of the alpha test footage things on IGN where a bunch of people jumped on their PCs and played against each other. I was sold. I was going to get it anyway. I was like, how could I not try this at least? And that's the thing. Rainbow Six Siege presented its E3 trailer in summer of 2014. It released in December 2015. It didn't show the trailer in 2014. And it did show Rainbow Six Patriots. And that went through a whole thing in like 2012, 2013. So technically, yeah. But when we're going just from Rainbow Six Siege, when they rebranded, reskinned everything in 2014, summer of 2014, basing it off that, um, if it's a year within a year and a half of waiting, that makes it a lot more enjoyable. The hype can't fester as long. It can't lose steam. It can't go too overboard. And it stays fresh in the memory if you're excited enough. Not all the time, but enough. I just find that to be a very optimal time frame to work with it. Modern Warfare 2019, I had exactly one year of hype. And I wasn't even that hyped at first. I was like, it promising. I was like, this this looks like it could be a, a change of the new chapter. I'm definitely going to look into it. And I saw more about how they're taking a tactical approach just before I had a PC. So I'm like, fuck yes, let's go. A more tactical COD on console. I'm, I'm here for it. Saw a little more gameplay. I'm like, oh, well, definitely I'm going to give it a shot. Like, I'm, I'm buying this one. I didn't buy the previous ones. I'm getting into this one. And I did. And I enjoyed it. But it wasn't like years and years of, oh my god, I'm you know. I have more hype for Modern Warfare 2 because I played Modern Warfare 1 and I knew, well, inevitably, they got number 2 coming out soon. Honestly, I forgot it had to cycle through two other studios. I forgot we had to get Cold War and Vanguard. And that has dramatically reduced my hype. But I try to ignore those and think this is just them working directly off the backs of Modern Warfare 2019. In some regards, all things are pointing to this is going to be second time's a chance. Modern Warfare 2019 was great. They just implement mostly what they did there, improve and add some things, right? And then with the change and hopefully with the acquisition to Microsoft, it'll be the there won't be many other COD games because it feels like it, we go one step forward, two steps back every COD cycle. We haven't had a good Treyarch Black Ops game through and through. Full package. 
in my opinion, since Black Ops 2. Now, Black Ops 3 was good, but I didn't play it when it came out, so I can't speak on it. But I've played it since then, and it is good. I just can't speak on it fully, so. But Black Ops 4 wasn't all that good. Cold War wasn't all that good. Of course, anything Sledgehammer has done, I don't think they've ever done a good job at a COD game. I think they're a good support studio. I think them and Raven... I've said this before, but real quick. I think Infinity Ward and Treyarch should be the only two helming the, the, the main games. And then they only need two support studios. Ravenclaw and Sledgehammer. That's four total studios working on two COD games. And instead of every year, every two years. At the very least. Not three games. Not three, one every year. And not... 12 studios working on them because currently there's like 12 or 15 studios that bounce between the work on them that seems so excessive and it really shows that they just don't have enough time or resources and why they're the biggest franchise of all time anyway so yeah hype is a dangerous thing and getting people hyped and getting them to pre-order or get into the game or be willing to try it day one or week one or month one is vital. It's very important, especially to the lifeblood of a multiplayer game, which is why free-to-play is such an enticing offer. So managing the hype, not letting it turn into a cyberpunk or No Man's Sky where it's little teases, huge, huge promises that don't even seem realistic, but the thing about video games are sometimes... They seem unrealistic and they actually pull it off because they drive new innovation and new technology. Like, oh, we've never seen that before. Well, that's because it's never been done before and this game just did it, right? Legend uh, Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild is a perfect example of when they showed it. People were like, that's cool, but we, we ain't never seen anything like this, quite like this. And they're like, that's okay. That's why we're doing it. And they did it and they pulled it off, right? However, they didn't build it up for six years for hype or four years. They built it up for a year, year and a half. You see the trend I'm saying? Most games that do successful know themselves and know they don't need to build up hype. Cyberpunk took... Cyberpunk announced their game the same year fucking Rainbow Six Siege did. Except Rainbow Six Siege came out a year, year and a half later. Cyberpunk came out eight and a half years later. That they skipped an entire console generation in the time it took them. Why did they announce that stupid little teaser and start... If they announced things in 2018, it still would have been six years, but good... Or, you know, seven years, almost six years... Or, I'm sorry, sorry, five to six years, my bad. That's still a lot of time, but that's much better than eight. Five years, right? Five, four, four or five years? See, I'm not even good at math. So yeah, that's what I'm getting at. It's those kinds of things that I think are kind of important to marketing. And it comes with transparency and honesty. You have to be honest about what the game is. No fake demos, no CGI shit. Don't show something that looks too good to be true. Show it when it's ready. If it's not ready, yeah, sure, show a little CGI teaser cinematic. Tell us about the gameplay. Show little pre-rendered clips. That's fine. That's fine if you don't have it and you want to start promo a year to two years early. I, I don't really mind that too bad, but... And when you make a change to your game, right? When a game developer 
completely cuts a feature they were talking about, mention it at some point. Don't just think, oh, hopefully they don't remember. They're publishing this to the internet. It's going to be logged. And someone's going to be excited for that feature. So it's just a courteous thing to say, oh, well, because we wanted to implement this or because it didn't work or because we didn't have the time or resources, we, we unfortunately had to cut this feature. However, we have these things. You know, just a nice little counterbalance. Honesty. And then, so that's all before it releases and building up the hype, right? A condensed time frame for a release date. Truthful representation and showing of the actual gameplay and what it'll look like. Fuck-ups and all. Even if it looks a little uh, rough around the edges. Inform the gamers on what they're buying. Be fair to the consumer. That's it. You just have to be considerate and fair to the consumer who's buying in. Or investing their time if it's a free-to-play. And then beyond that, you have to be transparent about the prices of the game. And specifically, what editions and what types come with what. I don't know if anyone's paying attention, but... 2K just dropped the... Did the dumbest fucking trick I've ever seen on their mass market. They called their PGA Tour, which they've always called something different. Their golf game. 2K23. With the same exact art style and cover work as... Um, you know, as NBA 2K23. And the community of 2K players call it 2K23 or just call it 2K because that's their biggest game. When they say that, they mean NBA. They don't have to say NBA 2K all the time now. 2K Interactive knew that. So they purposely made their golf game the same color scheme and, and oil canvas paint put slap Tiger Woods' face. Now, if you know Tiger Woods, obviously you know it's him, but not everyone knows him. So if someone's buying this game for their kid or for their boyfriend or husband or for the wife or girlfriend, if someone's buying that game for somebody and they're not quite into sports or they don't pay attention, which a lot of people don't, they're buying them a golf game. And it's not cheap. <laughs> it's seventy, eighty, a $100. Now, usually they offer refunds, so it's not the biggest deal, but that's clearly a marketing ploy to confuse people. I saw it in the store. I'm like, why is Tiger Woods on a NBA? I'm like, that doesn't seem right. It's ridiculous. I've never seen anything so just bald-faced deceptive. I have, but it's just I haven't seen anything like that. That's wild to me. And, and you can't you can't convince me that was accidental that was purely intentional to see if they can get some people to buy that game on top of that people are too lazy to return it or look into it they just buy it they're like alright fuck it I, I'm not gonna play that so they just discard it don't sell it back for whatever reason and they buy buy the actual 2K23 NBA doesn't matter to 2K they still make they now make double the sales and their golf game is suddenly doing better. I will be curious to see how well this 2023's golf game of theirs does compared to 2022-2021. If it does exponentially better, that's why. <laughs> I, I don't think there's a huge explosion of golf fanatics all of a sudden. I'm not saying golf is unpopular. I'm just saying in the video game market space, it ain't that popular. So anyway, 
Um, so those kinds of things. Buyer additions, right? Call of Duty is infamous for this fucking confusion now. Cross-gen bundle. Standard, deluxe. The pre-order features that you get regardless. Cross-gen bundle. The Vault or Ultimate Edition. Most video games from big publishers have multiple tiers. Multiple editions. And it's wild. They are outrageously expensive. They can get up to $100, $120. Like, what? You can buy two new games for that. What a fuck? <laughs> I could get... You know, and some games are bumping their price to 70 which makes no sense, because most games are sold digitally. That doesn't make a lick of sense to me. They're just trying to gouge people. Um, only certain companies. Plenty of companies aren't doing that. It just depends on the publisher, the developer, or the, the seller. PlayStation's doing that with PlayStation 5 games. Uh, Xbox is not doing that with first party... Well, first off, almost everything's on Game Pass, but... But even if it was, they're still selling it at $60. Sure, they have additions and, and bonus things that you can get for more money, obviously. But the baseline game is not raised at all. Now, when it's another publisher like Call of Duty and they're selling next-gen games, they're bumping the, the it up by $10 because they're seeing the opportunity. We have new consoles. This might be the only time, the only few years we could squeeze in and make it normal for games to jump from 60 to 70 Newsflash, people. Games were $60 during Xbox 360, PlayStation 3, and stayed that way up until now. If not, I think there are 50. And it's okay. Like, it makes sense by 360 era and PlayStation 3 era that it jumped up $10. That makes 110% sense to me. Now, it actually should decrease. They should be 40 to $50 because they're all digital. The necessity for physical games are very, very few. So they shouldn't need to manufacture as many physical copies at all. They should probably cut it down by 50%. You know how much money that saves? A lot. I'm fine with paying 50 to $60 for a game for a new game. Uh, that has to go to the publishers. That has to go to the creators. They work very hard for that. That's okay. But, come on. Bumping it up $10? I know games are getting more complex, but unless you give me a fair breakdown of where that money's actually going, I don't want to pay that. I will if I have to, though. And I do. I do have to on certain uh, cases. But anyway. So, clearly defining what comes with what bundle. When it comes out, too. When the release date is. When the release time window is. Since people are waiting to download Download sizes take forever. Do I have to go to work to download this? Do I download this before I go to work? How big is this? What are the system requirements? Pertinent information to how it will run and what you need to prepare for on your console. If this game is 60 gigabytes and requires this kind of processor in your PC, you ought to be allowed to know that and the information needs to be available. That kind of clear honesty, transparency in the prices, the features you get with it, where it runs needs to be clearly stated if this is a cross-gen game or not if this is next-gen only people should never be confused that they're buying it for the wrong console 
Of course, confusion may happen. Not everyone's perfect. Someone may not read it carefully, but the printing and labeling needs to be there. Also, just in general, this doesn't really have to do with communication, but for the future of gaming, for multiplayer games, I think this point on, and for the next two to three years, almost every game should start working itself to be fully cross-play integrated. The era of first-party exclusives and exclusive party platform things, it's okay to have that, but I don't think it needs to be the majority. I think it needs to be in the minority. If 10 or 15% of uh, certain games and multiplayer games are exclusive to that console, fine. Why can't I... Just because my buddy has a PlayStation 5 and I have a PC doesn't mean we shouldn't be allowed to play. And for the longest time, I wasn't quite sure maybe it's because only bigger studios could do it because of the money and the servers. No, I, I'm learning that it's not that it's easy by any regards. And there are pl probably plenty of games that actually could not physically do it because of the way they're built. So I'm not doubting that. I'm just saying going forward in the future and games that could be integrated and that should be. And it should be clearly advertised. And enough with this partial cross-play. Oh yeah, it's cross-play between two consoles. Uh, that's not cross-play. That, that, that's minor play. I, like, that's not really anything. I mean, I'm glad it's there, I guess. And I'm glad it's differentiated. So th there's that. I guess I shouldn't complain too much. Just full cross-play. And I get it. Older consoles just genuinely don't have the hardware and the support, and that makes way more work. So I get it, and that's what happens in the new cycle. It's unfortunate, but people on the older hardware just are not going to be able to keep it up. That's fine. So going forward, as we have the Xbox Series X and Series S, the PlayStation 5, and all that, should be all cross-play between each other, and between PC, if possible. Not every game, but most games. Or they should have the features and the toggles. I don't see why not. Honestly, I don't. Those kinds of things. That's how the multiplayer industry is shifting. Also, free-to-play. When it's free-to-play, clearly, clearly communicate is it pay to win is it cosmetics battle pass what's going to be the payment method within the game what aren't we going to know about till we crack open the sucker and i think most free-to-play games just kind of have this thing where they are already cross-play that just seems to be more popular with free-to-play lower barrier of entry they need people to consistently play that's that is how they make their revenue If you buy a $60 game from the get-go, yeah, they want you to play. Yeah, they want you to spend microtransactions, additional money, spend more time. Um, but they don't care too much if you don't keep playing. You already bought it. Free-to-play game. You have to stay there. You have to keep playing. That helps them as well as the longer you stay there to play, and the more you fall in love with it, the more likely you are to buy cosmetics. So yeah, in my mind, it's understandable, but I think all of that needs to be clearly communicated. So cross-play, also uh, remapping, button mapping, 
adaptive controls and or accessibility for those with disabilities or with needs um, that may not be met otherwise. That should always be a feature from now on. Um, there's no reason for people with a physical disability to not find a way to be able to play the same games that they would love to play with their friends or by themselves. That's just vital. I think Microsoft doing that whole adaptive controller thing was just incredible. They didn't have to do that. You know how much extra R&D and money and time and energy and marketing? You know how much trouble that is to figure all that out? That's very tricky. That's an engineering feat. And they did it. And it works. And it helps a lot of people. Anyway, um, those kinds of things. So, clear, concise, transparent communication in terms of what the game is, the gameplay itself, the mechanics at play, what it looks like, the graphics, all that from the developer to the people from the get-go and throughout. Clear and transparent communication on the pricing. Oh, also roadmaps. I think roadmaps need to be a thing. For multiplayer seasonal games. You know. I think they do. It makes sense to me at least. Um, to have them be accurate. To meet their deadline. And. Um, you know. To. To. To have substantive, substantive, to have enough content that releases, um, you know, between three and six months, no shorter, no longer. Six months, people forget about the game. I feel, or don't don't care as much, and then anything below three months, it becomes oversaturated. Of course, the most important element before I take an ad break. <laughs> the most important element is good gameplay. That golden balance of easy to pick up and play, maybe. At least from a physical controller, keyboard, mouse standpoint. Maybe with a learning curve, maybe not. Who knows? All kinds of games out there for all kinds of people. And difficult to master. Or at least challenging. Maybe not difficult, but challenging enough to master and get good at with progression in game, with rewards, with incentive. And in the multiplayer sense, a game with that doesn't have too many game-breaking bugs, if any, that runs smoothly, that is optimized for the device that it is being used on, that has consistent content updates or bug fixes at the very least, that has um, cross-play if possible, that has solid server connection and stability, and that listens their community is vital. And if it, if honestly, if it has all of what I just said, it's pretty much solid. But there's more to that that I want to get into. So here we go. So I talked about communication between publishers, developers, as well as between um, the consumer. Generally, good gameplay. The mechanics of such. I think all those things alone can make a multiplayer game successful. But what keeps it alive after its initial success? Well, continued support, like we saw in, like we see in seasonal passes and content updates, right? 
I mean, and, and like I mentioned before, I think that's pretty vital. But then, beyond that, uh, just general seasonal support and content updates is the community itself. And the community needs to be taken care of. Needs to be communicated with truthfully. Things need to be delivered and they need to be heard. If there's enough people complaining on Twitter, not everyone's going to report a bug fix. I'm sorry. People are lazy. People don't understand how it works. People may not want to for whatever reason. It's unfortunate to the devs because that is the easiest way they can make a fix and they built it right in and it's pretty integrated, but sometimes it's a pain. It's a hassle. What I don't get is it's not like the devs and the and quality assurance and the bug people and all that also don't check social media. Because that's probably the highest volume of where they get complaints. Now, a lot of that's just horseshit. A lot of it's just noise. A lot of it may not be helpful. But if the mass general consensus are looking for help on why this bug is happening or looking for what's going on with this or that, maybe. Maybe that's what you need to look into. What kills a live service game or a multiplayer game faster than anything else is lack of community and therefore lack of support based on that community. For example, there could be two games on the table. Mainstream, really popular, community-embraced game that may be good but isn't great, isn't too innovative, kind of the same old cookie-cutter stuff you've seen before. Not bad, but not great. Then there could be this excellent game that's interesting and it improves and innovates and is just different and still well-made and optimized and runs fair. does all the things that in the previous segments that I've mentioned. But for whatever reason, it doesn't take off. Or just not yet. Sometimes it takes time for these games to take off. It doesn't just quite click yet. doesn't have the right marketing behind it. That's the other thing I meant to mention in marketing. Sometimes game publishers will kill their own IP to boost their other IP if they own multiple franchises. Or sometimes they just don't give enough love in terms of marketing dollars to games that may deserve it because they are that fun, because they work that well. And they release them in time slots where, and dates where the, com- the competitive... Just don't release anything within the week to two weeks of Call of Duty. Just don't. It's not worth it. Release a couple weeks beforehand, release a couple weeks afterhand. But don't release within a two-week time frame of COD dropping. There's no point. You're not going to get people to buy or play your game. I'm sorry. Afterwards? Sure. Beforehand? Sure. Two-week initial hype, the first week leading up, and then this, the, the weekend it drops following that next week. Don't even try to drop a game then. I would say the month, but that's not always the case. There are plenty of games that drop within the month that do just fine. So I don't think that's accurate. But two-week time frame. I guess that is a month. Two weeks before, two weeks after. I guess that is a month. <laughs> I didn't think of it like that. But you know what I mean? Or a week, or two weeks total. My point is just between two to four weeks. Just be careful. Be wary, right? Obviously, stuff like that. Sometimes publishers don't give a shit. 
will force the devs to drop on that date anyway. Why? I don't know. <laughs> it makes no sense. You already put the money and the energy and the marketing the effort to fucking make the game. Why not just, I don't know, release it a couple weeks beforehand or afterhand? How does that make such a big difference? You're just sending it out to the pasture to get fucking slaughtered by a titan of the industry. Why bother, you know? You know, my favorite example, and I've discussed this in my podcast episode about Titanfall because it is one of my favorite FPS franchises that has never gotten enough love and hopefully because of Apex Legends success and it's in the same universe as Titanfall Titanfall 3 will come out bigger better than ever with the marketing backing it I pray to God that's the case because Titanfall needs the love Titanfall is a phenomenal game it's one of the best made first person shooters I have ever played in my life it runs well it's smooth it's super fun especially Titanfall 2 it's got enough progression but it's not overwhelming it's not a grind fest there's no loot boxes there's no micro well there's cosmetics but there's really no microtransactions no DLC pack, none of that shit. It's just fun, 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 through and through. You can play it forever. You can have fun. You can play it with your friends. It's easily accessible. And it's just a solid FPS game. And it's different enough. And it's unique enough with the Titans and the parkour. And it all works so well. It is its own footprint. And it should be competing with Battlefield and COD, respectively, because it is that good. Why isn't it? Oh, it's a little lacking. It doesn't have everything. It doesn't have as much of the money. It doesn't have as much of the depth. Okay, that's fine. That's something that could be fixed over time. That's not really the issue. The issue is Titanfall 2 specifically got cannibalized by its own publisher, by EA. EA threw it in front to take away sales from COD Infinite Warfare just to die. And then the next week, literally one week after it, Battlefield 1 dropped. The hype, the promo, the trailers on Battlefield 1 were phenomenal. I have never seen such a good marketing push for a game. I don't think I ever. I don't think I've, I very rarely have I seen such a good marketing push for one game. And Battlefield 1 did that. And by the way, Battlefield 1 is phenomenal. It's one of the best Battlefield games ever made. So it definitely deserves its flowers. But Titanfall 2 is also one of the best, is the best Titanfall game and is one of the best FPS games I've ever played. In fact, both games are some of the best FPS games I've played in almost ever. It's almost a damn shame that they both released within a week apart from each other. And they're both by EA. That was like the last time EA put out a solid, good, all the way around, franchisable thing. Why didn't they just drop Titanfall in the summer? No competition. People are bored. They're waiting for games to play. You drop Titanfall. Why not? Would have taken off. It would have had its legs to stretch and grow. It would not have been competing with Call of Duty Infinite Warfare, with Battlefield 1, and with Dishonored 2. Which I know people are like, Dishonored 2, really? Yeah, Dishonored has enough of a name. It was such a cult classic. It carved out enough. And that came out like two weeks after Battlefield 1. Yeah, I get it. October, well, even September. September, October, November are the hottest three months for game drops. Just don't drop a game if it's not going to be as big. Especially in the same weeks. They all dropped in like October. Why? Why? Why do that? I don't get it. So, yeah. High on Life was going to drop 
October 4th, and then it was dropped, pushed back. It's a new game by the creators of Rick and Morty. It looks kind of fun, interesting. It was going to drop a couple weeks before COD, Modern Warfare 2. No problem, really, actually. It was going to drop October 4th. I was super excited. Game Pass Day 1 sort of thing, too. I got pushed back a couple weeks. Okay, that's fine. I get that. You know, maybe they have bug fixes. Maybe they're... Alright, fine. So, it actually got pushed back to October 23rd. Or uh, 5th, I mean. Literally two days after Modern Warfare drops. That was the locked-in date for like a couple months. And recently they announced they're pushing back to December... 13th or something because they need to work on the game polish it more I do believe that's the case I also believe they kind of thought ah, we're an FPS game why are we going to even compete in the same space everyone's going to be playing COD it's not one of those things where I'm not saying everybody buys COD or buys this more popular game and I'm not saying that doesn't make it doesn't make the other game less meaningful and it doesn't mean the other game won't sell well or get enough plays. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying the people who would look into an FPS game are a little preoccupied. The people who may be interested in playing a new game will be a little preoccupied. That's all. You know, when I tell when I tell my fans, I'm like, yeah, it kind of sucks I dropped on the same weekend as Drake. Or as Kendrick, or as M, or J. Cole, if that's ever going to happen again. I usually actually drop a single around the same time Eminem drops an album. Almost every time I've dropped a single, Eminem's dropped something around that time. It's crazy. Because he's my favorite rapper of all time, so it's honestly exciting. Um, two times I've dropped an album, DJ Khaled's dropped. Anyway, my point is, um, I'm not in the realm of competing with them. It's not like they're taking streams away from me. They're just taking the first three days away from me. That's all. They're not taking it away from me. They're just making it harder for me to tell who's listening because, and I tell people this, I tell them, I say, even my own fans, they're bigger fans of M. They're bigger fans of Kendrick or Cole or even the features on Khaled or Kanye West or whomever, whomever's out at the moment. They're going to go listen to them first. And they're going to listen maybe a couple times before they even think about me. And that's the fear, because then they might forget that my album dropped, or they might not care. It's a very real thing. I had a friend of mine drop an album a day after Kendrick Lamar dropped Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers. I've been waiting for Kendrick's new album for five years. I wasn't being rude. I wasn't trying to be mean. I just told him straight up, I said, listen, this is in my library. I'm definitely going to go stream it in about a week or two because I'm going to listen to Kendrick's album and I'm going to listen to it probably about 20 times over and not listen to anything else. That's how I love to enjoy new music, especially lyricists, especially if I've been waiting for five fucking years. I said, I'm so sorry. It's nothing to do with you. It's just I'm a weirdo and I want to go listen to that. And I did. I went back and I listened to his album and it's phenomenal and I highly, um, highly recommend it. His name's Class. K-L-V-S-S. His album's King. Streaming out everywhere. It's a phenomenal album. He released it a day after Kendrick dropped his. I love him. Uh, he and I are working on a song together. It's, it's an incredible album. It really is. And I'm almost kind of upset that I actually just didn't listen to it 
take the time out of my day. But I was just so enamored with Kendrick's album. And I was also moving back home, so I was super busy. That's just how it was. So I highly recommend that album if anyone's interested in hip-hop. KLVSS uh, is his name, class. Anyway, um, those things matter, people. So that release date thing is an important function. So community, community, community. If you don't have a strong community, it will not be supported for very long by the developers. So these two factors, community and support, are two separate pillars that I was going to talk about, but I'm just merging them as one. Kamuta support. No, but seriously, community and support are two vital aspects. Community in terms of the players. How much they got a Reddit, they got memes going, they got Instagram fan pages of their favorite characters in the game of whatever. I think that's why Overwatch and Rainbow and Valorant and all these hero shooter based games do so well is because Team Fortress 2 of course is because the unique characters yeah, they fit class styles, they fit play styles, but they also really tap into the communal aspect of, oh, you play as Winston in Overwatch, or oh, you play as uh, uh, as Caviera in Rainbow Six Siege, you know? It, it builds a bond. If you're a Cavi main, or an, if you're an Ash main, fuck you, you know? The fact that I'm able to spew that with that much uh, emotion in my my bones that means something that means the game did something right in fact that's why I think Battlefield 2042 tried to specialize operators I think that's why COD did too but the thing is Overwatch and Rainbow Six Siege built from the ground up even though Rainbow was already an established franchise in gaming they redesigned themselves rebooted themselves with the hero shooter kind of framework in mind Overwatch, brand new IP with the hero thing in mind. Call of Duty and Battlefield are not brand new IPs. They just have new entries that are trying new shit. That's perfectly fine. But them, like COD, trying to have specialized heroes in Warzone, that's all well and good. They don't have any attributes. They're just skins. At least with Battlefield, they actually had attributes. But who cares? Because 2042 is such a botched launch. I don't get why. How? Battlefield 5 was a botched launch. Not necessarily because of its bugs, but because of its lack of content and all that. But I, I actually encourage people to go back and play Battlefield 5 because it's really fucking fun. It's a great World War II shooter in Battlefield. It's like Battlefield 1, but World War II. And better lighting. Um, it's really good. Fuck all the controversy behind it. I went back and played it with my buddy Riza, and it was a blast. Now, I will say, it the reason why I didn't stick with it, the same reason why I didn't stick with replaying Battlefront 2, Star Wars Battlefront 2, when that came back out of the woodworks and, and fixed itself, is the community was dead. And that's the other thing. A lot of these games that have botched launches that are phenomenal to play and just need three more months of tuning to get people back into it. They release new games by the time they get it fixed. Why? Why do you do that? You know? Or they release something great and they still release a new game. That's what I hate about COD. Why are you doing an annualized release cycle? 
You don't even give us a year to enjoy something you spent four years on. How does that make any sense? That kills the community, by the way. Yes, people still play the older games. Plenty of people don't buy the new ones. They just stick to the ones they like. Yeah, but let's be honest with ourselves. The mass people migrate. In fact, I think with Vanguard, with Cold War, kind of iffy, and then Vanguard for sure, I think was the first time we ever saw in Call of Duty players maybe play it or buy it or get the beta or hear how shitty it was and not buy it and stick with Cold War and stick with Modern Warfare 2019. That's that's actually the case for a lot of players. Or Warzone. Because Warzone's free to play, it's being updated, and it has a very lively populace, but it's just mostly Battle Royale. It's not the full suite of COD. It has, for me, it hasn't felt like we've had a massive COD game that everybody consistently played since 2019. I've been waiting for that community feeling again. Battlefield 1 was one of the best community experiences in a game I've had. I previously had an episode not too long ago about community and gaming and how that can change your entire perception of the game from the jump. From in-game to out-of-game. From the social media, the memes, the posts, the blogs, the, the networking, the Discord, all that. That's all very vital. But then also, when you're in-game, does it feel grandiose? Even for the scale of the game. It doesn't have to be 100 v 100 people, but does it feel like there's a bunch of people in this game? Sometimes it'll just show you the counter. Halo Reach didn't have the largest lobbies looking back at it. I mean, yeah, Big Team Battle was pretty big, but what was that, like 32 v 32 or 16 v 16? Something like that. Still plenty big. It felt big every time, even when I was playing SWAT 4v4. It felt like there was all these people on because whenever I switched game modes to infection or big team battle build up like that and you got a diverse group of people it also showed how many people are online and it was a lot it's a lot of people online that helps too um that cohesion that communal feeling in a game Elden Ring had an phenomenal feeling of that even though it wasn't multiplayer that was even harder to do but when you go online and you watch the videos or you go in the community blog posts you see everyone talking about oh what you, you got this web okay i i have this one you know that same experience when you're kids and you're comparing toys or pokemon cards or whatever It's that aspect. So whether it's in-game or out-of-game, community is vital to the longevity and success of a multiplayer game. And there's a difference between a trending community and a longevity in community. Sea of Thieves kind of hit a point of longevity. No Man's Sky has hit a point of longevity. Maybe not forever, but it's going to keep staying consistent. Minecraft, obviously. Rainbow Six Siege. Call of Duty has one of the strongest, most impassioned communities ever. Of course, they release new games every year, so it kind of makes it a little harder for that community to stay consistent, which I think I think part of the reason why Warzone is pretty unique. Um, 
Escape from Tarkov, I've heard good things about that growing community. Anyway, every game has its own, like, niche community, but some are bigger than others. Some are more passionate. Um, some are more active. God, Zombies community is insane. If they had COD Zombies as a its own standalone game, had all the remastered maps as a huge collection bundle, or a lot of them, and have a shit ton of new maps, traditional round base, new weapons, new perks, all of that, and then had this open world roaming aspect or larger multiplayer lobbies, like public lobbies where it's not just four, where you can have that, but you can have like up to 30 people on a huge sprawling map. Oh my god. The community would go apeshit. And if it all worked and ran, you know, pipe dream shit, but community is key. It really tells the developers where to put their money and their marketing in. Rainbow Six community was very sparse at the beginning. And it didn't do great, but it was consistent. It kept playing. It stuck with it. Ubisoft said, fuck it, let's take the risk. Instead of pulling the plug on this because it's not doing well and it's getting mixed reception, everyone's saying the gameplay is good and it's fun. It's just lacking content and the shop is egregious. So they said, all right, instead of pulling plug, let's try a seasonal thing. Let's rework the shop, make it way more fair, rebalance the renown and the cost for our operators, drop seasonal content, let's try it for a year. By the end of the first year, it exploded in popularity. Because they started showing continuous support. So transitioning from community to support, the community stays on board when the devs support it. So it's a self-serving cycle. It is kind of dangerous because if one aspect is lesser than the other one goes down the shitter Titanfall 2's community was super strong it's one of those things where respawn was just forced to prioritize other things unfortunately they didn't market it for the success of a continuized product that's okay it sucks but it's okay Apex Legends, they're doing that with, and they do have a bigger support for that. kind of sucks because those Titanfall players are left to dust and were the reason why Apex Legends exists. But they are making a Titanfall 3, so I guess I can't complain too much. If they cancel Titanfall 3 permanently, I'm... <sighs> I'm going to mourn for a while. So yeah, that's what I think is kind of just a vital thing to remember. Sometimes the developer has to reprioritize unfortunately but a lot of the time if the community is supporting the game playing it talking about it getting new people on board the devs are going to continue its support for it especially if they don't have to worry about a new game coming out especially if they don't have to worry about anything of that nature look at minecraft minecraft's been out for 10 years it's gotten more updates than anything i've ever seen it is still one of the largest gaming communities in the world. Rocket League took that approach in 2017, 2018, maybe later than that. It went free to play from its $20 price tag to free to play. Added some extra modes. It still needs a little more substance, but it's okay for now. And yeah, I'm surprised, I'm honest to God, I'm surprised Rainbow Six Siege isn't free to play. Because it has so many operators and stuff you can still buy. I'm surprised it's not free to play where you get the baseline operators. 
They already paid for a battle pass and annual pass. They already have enough money more than God and himself. Why not? If they made that switch for free-to-play, honestly, they might just have too many people playing it. If they went full cross-play and free-to-play, I guarantee you Rainbow would continue to be one of the most played shooters on the market and explode in popularity. Added to substantive content, rank 2.0, cross-progression, those permanent arcade modes, the stuff I've talked about before, I think that could take it far. Those kinds of things are vital. Community, their response, their engagement to the game itself, their love for it, and then, of course, the support from the developers. That all makes the world go around. It all makes the game stay alive. Couple that with the clear communication and good gameplay loop. You got yourself a successful, long-lasting, impactful multiplayer video game. Let me get into conclusions and wrap this up. Stick around. Thank you all for uh, listening to this podcast and sticking around. Hope you're all having a good time. Um, So what makes a multiplayer game, a modern multiplayer game, viable and successful for um, for now to the future is, you know, strong gameplay, fun, strong gameplay loop with decent progression or decent natural reward in the experience. Always that comes first. Good game, good gameplay, obviously. Clear, concise communication on what the game is, the price, the features, the development time, the release date, the cycles of development, the process, all of that. Clear, concise, transparent, honest information given from the source, from the developers or publishers to the consumers before, during, and after the cycle of the pre to production to post production of the multiplayer game. The continuation of content, seasonal, general bug fixes, updates, battle passes, cosmetics, all of that. The vitality of the community in terms of their support because they love the game, because they keep playing it, because the cosmetics or this or that. Their support, their integration, their input. Them voicing what they want changed, what they want to see in the future. Like I'm doing right now for the entire industry. As well as the developers listening and implementing when and where they can and where they see fit. Hopefully more and and quicker than not. All of these aspects, all of these core pillars is what makes a multiplayer game vital. They don't always hit 100% out of the park home run on these assets. Sometimes they fall short. Sometimes things get in the way. Life happens. It's understandable. I don't blame them. But if they keep that as their core goal and structure, then, then it should be usually pretty successful. Right. I'm talking strong multiplayer games that at least hit on majority of these or have or continue to or attempt to that have been proven to be successful are games like GTA 5 Online, Minecraft, right? Rainbow Six Siege, Valorant, Team Fortress 2, Counter-Strike, Call of Duty, a lot of them, not all of them, but a handful of a lot of them. Some of the battlefields. Apex Legends. Fortnite. 
and so many more. And there's going to be droughts. There's going to be dips. There's going to be times where the game is no longer as popular. Why? Because time. People play other games. People get into other things. New games come out. They get bored of that. There's not enough new content. They don't play games anymore. Who knows? Who knows the actual reasoning? But people change. Their tastes change. The consumer market changes. That doesn't mean the game needs to cease to exist, especially if it's already established itself to not worry about having a sequel for any time soon. just means they need to evolve with it or stay steady. I think what Rainbow Six has learned is that not every season and not every year is going to be very successful or popular. But if they take their... They, they still get enough consistent players. They still get enough revenue so they, it's not like they're losing money, right? That's the biggest component. And they know if they take, take a little hit on what they're used to, take a punch on the chin, they'll learn how to dodge it next time and hit with an uppercut. I think year six, year five and year six, I don't know the stats, but I don't think it was as popular for Rainbow. I think it was just good enough to keep them going, to not worry about it. In fact, they've made so much money now already, they committed to their community to have a 10-year plan, to have 100 operators, so... By the time that hits it, then we'll see their announcement. Announcement. Will they do a Rainbow Six Siege 2 just because they need new engine and new core architecture to support everything? Kind of like what Overwatch 2 is doing with over from Overwatch, you know. Will they do something like that? Will they just keep on growing it like Minecraft? I don't know. I hope they do. But we'll see. But they learn that Doing the same thing is fine. It keeps them safe, but they need to try some things. So with permanent arcade, cross-progression, rank 2.0, some actually new operators that really change the meta, new gadgets, those kinds of things, attachments, bugs, balances, new maps, that shit helps. (laughs) Right? Stuff like that. Pushing the mold, innovating, allowing a loss every once in a while. Game companies, studios, publishers feel very reactive and volatile in how they perceive the future. They forecast a trend, they jump on it because they see everyone else is doing it, whether or not they're too late to the party. They do it, it doesn't succeed, they pull the plug immediately. That happens more than not. That's innovation. That happens in all markets in America. But the weird thing about it is they'll spend two or three years developing it based on a trend or based on the thought that they're jumping into something. Then it doesn't work in the first two months and they pull the plug. I've seen more games with a lot of money and a lot of time spent in it and that looks really interesting pulled within the first two months. Why? Give it a year. Have that contractually written down that you give it a year to two of support because if it isn't shown that you're going to give that, if it feels like the game's going to have its cord pulled on a live service or on a game that needs seasonal updates, then really no one's going to play it. Because even if the core gameplay is good, the hopes to new content and additions and features and things in the future that will be added to improve the experience as time goes on is just as promising. I love Rainbow. I could play Rainbow almost any day. But what keeps me even more excited is where Rainbow will go in the future. Same with COD. Same with Warzone even. I don't play Warzone every day. I don't really love it that much. But I am excited to see what might change and come of it. 
I like that. I think a lot of gamers do. They look forward to what new thing comes out. I can get just as excited as a new free update to a game I've been playing for years as much as a new game I've never heard of before. Because it's a game I already like, that I already know about. If it's a free update, I get to try it. Hell, sometimes even if it's a DLC content, I might be interested in buying it if it adds that much more content to the experience. So why do people pull a plug? I don't know. I find that to be gross negligence in understanding the support of the game and the community. These kinds of things matter. I think Hell Let Loose that I've talked about before and I haven't played enough of uh, in a while, just been distracted with other games and life itself, um, I think Hell Let Loose does a phenomenal job at this. We'll see where it goes in the future, but for one, it runs well, it works well, it's unique, it stands out, it's super fun. Yeah, it's difficult, but it's not like anything you've seen before. So on its own, it's already a good game. Then it is getting updates. Not a lot, not often. It needs some more bug fixes, and I think it needs a few more staff people to keep it semi-consistent or put out roadmaps. As I said before, roadmaps can be very helpful to giving a general time frame and to build excitement as long as they're true to the content and to the time frame. So that's important. But what Hell Let Loose did is they have sales all the time. They have a huge community of people consistently playing because it's just that good. It's that fun. It's that well made. And on top of that, on top of the updates and stuff... It's crossplay, fully, with next-gen hardware, I should say. Not with older-gen hardware, but with the new Xboxes, the new PlayStations. Do you know how much easier that makes... Uh, and it's also $40. Do you know how much easier that makes it for me to try and convince my friends? Now, unfortunately, a lot of my friends aren't into tactical shooters, nor are they into World War II things, which drives me fucking nuts, because if they play it, they'll have a blast. I know they will. It's like Battlefield. Everyone liked Battlefield 1. That's World War 1. It's not quite as casual as that, but it has that cinematic feel. But, okay, that might not be the game for them. But the idea that in the future, games like this, 40 to $60, are just cross-play. Do you know how much easier that makes it? Almost all my friends are on different consoles now. Not everyone stays on the same console for various reasons. The ability to know that we could play together. For me to push that. I won't push games as hard if they're not crossplay. I couldn't play it with my friends. And I can't get my friends to get a new console at every point. Just like they can't get me to one. I don't see myself buying a PlayStation 5 or Xbox Series X because I have a PC. They don't see themselves buying a PC because they have an Xbox Series X or PlayStation 5. Though PC gives you more options. So maybe down the line. But you know what I mean? I could get them to get a $40 game if it allows us to play together. The more, the more easy you make it and more fun you make it for friends to play with each other and to continue to play together, the better. Next time they do new zombies, if they can just make it as good as Black Ops 2 or 3 with the remastered maps from Black Ops 2, if they can just make it that fun, the fact that it's crossplay now, all the new COD games are crossplay, is huge to me. So big. All my friends are looking forward to playing. The, my friends who I game with daily, every night, my closest buddies, 
We like to play and try all kinds of new games, but it's difficult because I have an Xbox and PC. One of my friends just has a PC, and then my other friends have an Xbox. One has an older-gen Xbox. One has a newer-gen Xbox. So because we're PC to Xbox, no one's PlayStation, though some of them have a PlayStation as well. That does make it easier in a lot of respects. But old Xbox to a new-gen Xbox to a PC still makes it really complicated. And there's really people, there's only four or five fully crossplay games that are actually that fun to, to spend your time in. And when I'm seeing new games come out on the next-gen hardware that is multiplayer and that's saying we really care about cooperative play and they're not fully crossplay, I'm like, how? How do you guys not figure this out? Why not? If it was on Game Pass or if it's free-to-play and if it's fully crossplay, you have a higher chance of way more people trying it and playing it than not. I think the thing about multiplayer games that's unique is money matters, obviously, but what matters just as much is consistent player growth and how long they stay on your game. Is it fun? Is it good to come back to? Is it fun to stay in? Yeah. If it is, keep it that way and make it more accessible. So the future of video games is headed in this direction. And multiplayer games are at the forefront of that innovation. And if they don't understand that, they will soon enough. And they need to keep on pushing for that goal of hitting those pillars. Lastly, one thing I want to mention before I close this, even though that would have been a perfect ending. I bet you that the Battle Royale light, like mid, partially Battle Royale, partially survival partially traditional for the fps multiplayer market like what's the new subgenre? yeah obviously arena shooter all that like halo like cod all that is always going to be good the team death match the hard points never can go wrong with those obviously but what's that new thing you know battle royale was that new thing what's that new thing extraction survival killing looting that balance the escape from tarkov's the hunt showdowns the you kill this person you get their equipment you get the fuck out kind of like division their dark zone raids that I'm telling you that is the future they're going to keep battle royales they're going to keep all the other stuff but a new addition that's a little different and adds a little more realism a little more tactical a little more communication a little more of that co-op aspect is that I've been seeing it coming for a minute now with Hunt Showdown with Escape from Tarkov games like that and now Battlefield gave it a shot with their thing didn't work Modern Warfare 2 is going to have that. And once COD adopts it, it doesn't mean it's going to succeed, doesn't mean it's going to go viral, but it's going to hit people's radar. And the ones that do it right, because that's their entire gameplay loop, like Escape from Tarkov, like Hunt Showdown, like even somewhat like Rust and like a bunch of other games, we're going to see a new trend in that direction. So I'm excited for that. Because it's actually a really cool concept. Anyway, I hope you all have a good day, and I hope you think about these things when you are gaming. Much love, and until next time, peace.